I'm so glad to be here this morning. I hope you are too, to be together with God's people, to worship the Lord. He is worthy of our praise and worship. I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We, it, it's interesting, when you're not the weekly preacher, when you're not the guy who's the regular teacher, and you take a break in an exposition, it's actually really difficult in some ways because you don't want to re-preach what has already been preached. Sure, there's value in correcting the errors of Pastor Worley, but that's not here for, <laughs> that's not what I'm here to do. Is this being recorded? I think it's really important that if you just blacken that out, that'd be really helpful. It's actually harder than, than one thinks. But so as soon as I became aware that I was going to be one of, the, uh, pre one of the preachers for the three weeks that Pastor Worley's out of the pulpit and we're kind of freezing our exposition of Romans, I just, I constantly was asking um, in my prayers, Lord, what do you want your people to hear? What do you want your people to hear? And, and I think he's answered that in some ways um, through Romans chapter 9. So we're going to read the first 18 verses. And as I mentioned, we're not going to go through and, and re-exposit these, these passage, this passage. If you want to go back over that, we have, I'm sure, audio and even maybe even video from when we went through that verse by verse and line by line. So that's not the purpose here. But I want you just to be aware of two really big, what I'm seeing as big themes that are in the first 18 verses. And we're going to look at those just generally and then use those as a jumping point to, to make some observations for Christ's church this morning. So in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, we find these words from the Apostle Paul. Hear the word of the Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, 
in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer. Father, this morning we come, and Lord, we just want the hearing of your word, the hearing from you through your word, to be a continuation of our worship. So, Father, give us ears to hear. Father, may your Spirit instruct us clearly. May he transform us right here where we're at so we leave here with a greater love for you and a greater desire to bear your name well as we go out from here into the world around us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. God's Word is truly amazing, truly amazing. We could learn from it in so many different ways. We could do word studies. We could do verse-by-verse exposition, which is the primary diet of Grace Church DuPage. We can learn by tracing themes throughout the Bible. And even as I want to do today, we can learn simply by noticing what topics are addressed in Scripture, particularly when they are addressed side by side. So my focus today, with the Lord's help, is to focus on two truths right next to one another in Romans chapter 9. We read them, and I I wonder if you picked up on them. So these two truths, very simply, are Paul's absolute heartbreak over the lostness of his people. The absolute heartbreak. You really see that in verses 2 and 3. And then truth number 2, the doctrine of God's choice of showing saving mercy to some but not to others. Also known as the doctrine of election. So right next to one another, we have these two truths. One revealing the heart of the gospel minister, the posture of the gospel minister, and the other revealing a deep, deep, multifaceted, across the Bible, doctrine that God chooses according to his sovereign will and purposes. And I want to ask, what would God want us to learn from these two truths revealed 
side by side as they appear in the same chapter of Scripture. A weeping for the lost and the highest of doctrine side by side. Luther says that the doctrine of predestination is the highest mystery in Scripture. Now, I, I don't know if I agree with that. I would say the doctrine of the Trinity, try to get your arms around that. Have a discussion over lunch at, at the patio this afternoon. It is, it is hard to get our arms around that. But yet, right beside the highest of doctrines is a weeping for those who are lost. And somehow, it's meant to be there side by side in God's plan for his people. Paul moves from one to another without any hesitation. So what should that tell us? He doesn't, he doesn't express his heartbrokenness for the lost and then take his foot off the depth of the doctrine. He doesn't prepare for the depth of the doctrine by appearing cold or calloused. Rather, he appears warm and heartbroken. Both of these things are good, both of these things are true, and both of these things are important. I'm going to go back. Let me see. Oh, can I do it? There it is. Both of these things are important. And to bear God's name well, to represent him accurately, we need to be a both and people. Not a one at the cost of the other people. We are, we are living in an age that is both growing cold relationally towards one another, and even within the church, we're growing in an age where doctrine doesn't seem to matter. We're becoming minimalist, reductionists. And we want to hold both of these in attention to one another. We could say it this way, as kingdom people, so remember that, if you've been called into the kingdom, you are a kingdom person under the authority of the king, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. As kingdom people seeking to represent the king accurately, we must both weep over the loss and possess a great zeal for what God has revealed in his word. So it, it might be really important here to insert a scholarly, well, duh, we know that. But I think it bears reminding. This balance actually is very difficult to maintain. Oftentimes, the church pits these two things against one another, where the love for the lost component renders doctrine useless because what's really important is loving them well. Or the doctrinal part sometimes can lead to us becoming almost cold doctrinalists, especially when we start creeping into doctrines such as the doctrine of election. So let's start with the first of the two things. Uh, actually, I'll start with the second. 
Why should we have a great zeal for doctrine? Why a great zeal for doctrine? It can be fairly said that Grace Church has a zeal for precise doctrine. It's evidenced by, if you were to take our doctrinal statement and our position papers, it goes about 31, 32 pages, depending on your font size. That's a whole lot of doctrine and positions. So the question is, is that overkill? Is that overkill? So I've had people reach out to me, hey man, love to come visit your church. What do you guys believe? And I, I say, well, here's a link to our doctrinal statement, our position papers, and I usually get one of two responses. Either, hey, cool, I'll see you this Sunday, or I never hear back from them again. That's a whole lot of doctrine. Is that overkill? Is that splitting hairs? Is that us becoming just these, 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 these ivory tower theologians? I would argue with a resounding no. God has given us 66 books of his revelation. As I've heard it said, the Bible is much more than just John 3.16. Though we love John 3.16. It's much more than that. God himself has spoken of the importance of his word. Christ himself speaks of the importance of God's word when he's, when he's answering the tempter, the devil. When he quotes Deuteronomy, and he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Doctrine is important to God. Every word that God has given us is important. So much so that God says it's right there with our daily food. Now that's a gut shot, no pun intended. That's a gut shot to me because I love food. And here the Lord Jesus is saying, well, God's word needs to be right there. Same pursuit. Same pursuit. So God's people, in our quest to accurately reflect our God as those who bear his name, so I'm bringing that Alex Kirk message forward a little bit, we need to be reading, we need to be studying, we need to be meditating, we need to be memorizing, we need to be plumbing the depths of God's word. We need to be teaching it to our kids. Teach our kids doctrine. That's why the historic church always was using catechism as a means to teach their kids doctrine. We need, much like the popular phrase foodies, we need to become wordies. We do. In an age of just absolute confusion, we possess the truth. And we, are, we have the call to represent the God of truth, the God who gave that truth accurately. We need to become wordies. God has given his people deep, detailed revelation, and our calling is to know it. Let it transform us and proclaim it to one another and to the world around us. That is part of the purpose of the church. Paul says as much when he, he, he gives his 
purpose statement to writing to his young son in the faith, Timothy. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul gives that purpose statement. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. All right, that makes sense. So what is the house, what is the purpose of the household of God? It is the church of the living God. So among the dead idols of the world, we are the gathered people of the God who lives. And we are the pillar and support or buttress. Who knows what a buttress is? Tell me after service. But the buttress. So, so it is, we hold up the truth. On us the truth rests. The foundation on which the truth rests, the cornerstone of that foundation being the Lord Jesus Christ. God's desire is for his people to value his truth as much as we value, as much as we value food. God's desire is for his people to be the place where the truth is found. The church of Christ is to be a repository of the truth reflecting what is really true about God, what is really true about man, what is really true about life and death, what is really true about the kingdom, about what is coming next, and much, much, much more to a world that is lost and in darkness and is being fed all sorts of lies about what truth really is. If there is truth at all. We would say this. We proclaim deep, transforming truth to the world. And this last clause is really important. From a platform of lives deeply transformed by that truth. So if I, I go to the doctor... And I'm going in for a physical, and I'm just, man, I am really, really committed to health. Diet and exercise, right? Clearly, this is an example. This isn't, this is, all right. And that doctor comes in, hacking his brains out, smoking a cigarette. Am I going to listen to him tell me about health and wellness? Probably not. Why? Because his message has no platform of credibility on which that message sits. That's why for us, as we proclaim the deep, transforming truth of the world to the world, it needs to rest on transformed lives. We need to display the transformation God has for us through Jesus Christ, according to his word, according to his word, to the world. Our lives must match our words. That's what God desires for his people and from his people. To bear his name well, to represent him accurately, we must enter into the depths of what he has revealed to us in his word. That is not overkill. That is not picking at theological nits. 
That is not being ivory tower theologians. This is our calling, the calling of the church. When a church abandons its zeal for the truth, it is no longer fulfilling its calling. It has lost its way. It has become unhitched from its purpose in God's plan. Yet our love for the truth must be balanced. It must be balanced with our love for the lost. I just have to confess, I hate outlines. But I feel like I have to, I have to sort of put one out there to help me organize my thoughts. So I didn't even mention it. I don't put it in the bulletin. I just let it be a surprise. You're welcome. Point number two. In the outline, it's not an outline. Why... Why brokenheartedness for the lost? We, we said, and if you still have your Bibles open, it begins in chapter 2. But Paul's words in verse 3 are just stunning. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, what prompted Paul's words? These are, these, are, these are deep, emotional words of feeling. This isn't cold doctrinalist talk. This is, this is deep emotion talking. What prompted Paul's words? The fact that some, most, most of his fellow Israelites had rejected their Messiah the long-promised good and righteous king. It was the consequences of that that made him weep. Why? Because he loved them. He loved them. He loved them, and he knew the consequences of rejecting the king, the Messiah, the Savior. He loved them, and he knew the consequences awaiting them if they stayed in unbelief. So we don't, we don't have fellow Israelites to weep over, though some may. There may be some, some people that are, have, have Abraham's blood, DNA. But although we don't have fellow Israelites to weep over, we do have, we do have family who is lost. We do have our friends who are lost. We have neighbors who are lost. We have coworkers who are lost. Perhaps people just in the general circle of our everyday operation, people that greet you in the grocery store, and it's the same person so often they actually like recognize you and say, hey, who are lost? And the truths of the gospel, the, the, the gospel preached by Paul, remain. And it's this. The king and the kingdom have come. Don't miss it. Because if you miss it, the consequences are horrific. The end, the end for fellow image bearers who die apart from Christ is terrifying. Because there's a judgment coming. But it's even more than that. 
It's right now. There is a sad state of living in this life apart from God. The slavery of thinking that you're free. But in reality, you thinking that you're free is actually evidence that you're enslaved. That's a blindness. Considering the fact that people are walking this earth at odds, enemies of their creator, hoping in things that really have no ultimate meaning, have no ultimate purpose, can't provide any sort of ultimate hope, that should make us grieve. That should make us grieve over the lost. This should lead towards a tender-heartedness towards the lost and a gentleness and long-suffering toward the lost. 2 Timothy 2, you can turn there if you want. I'm going to have it up here in a moment. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul, again, talking to his precious son in the faith, and 2 Timothy 2 is kind of like his last words. And we know when we're talking about lasts, Usually we're emptying out the storehouse of things that we think are really, really important for people to hear. And I think, I think what, what Paul says to Timothy here is incredibly important for us to hear today. Because we're, we're kind of living, we're, we're, leaving, we're leaving the position in our culture now where Christianity was the default position. 50 years ago, everybody went to church not saying that everybody was Christian, but it was just our, it was our, the way our culture operated. And we've gone kind of from that being the default position to where now there's, there's a, a vilification of Christians. There's vilification of Christians who dare claim that there's absolute truth. There's vilifications of Christians who would claim there's actually only one way. We don't get to choose ours. And what can happen in us is we can adopt a posture that is against what God desires from us. We could become mockers. We could become angry. We can revile in return, though even our Lord Jesus Christ didn't revile in return. So Paul's words in 2 Timothy 2 are really, really instructive as it's our posture. So we have, a, we have a brokenheartedness towards the lost because we recognize how they're living now and what awaits them at the judgment. Brokenheartedness. But as we engage them, we want to engage them well. As God has said, 2 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Now, in your Bible, I want you to note something. It is the absence of an asterisk. There's no asterisk. But! No, no, no but. Because what our heart wants to do is our heart wants to come up with justifications, an asterisk for why I can step outside of that command and I can revive, because that, that's how they're going to learn. No. That's actually faithlessness is what that is. 
And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. There's our posture. There's our posture. Well, how do they change? How do they change if I don't slap them upside the head? The next word, God. God. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We can be so easily deceived, brothers and sisters, in thinking that our sharpness, our bluster, is what is necessary, which in fact is, is actually mirroring the world. We, 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 we get deceived into thinking that that will bring the new birth. That's what will affect the change. And that actually is faithlessness. God oftentimes loves to use the mixture, the mixture of the message and the posture of the gospel messenger to do great things in people's hearts. We have to constantly be reminding ourselves of that. As our, our culture tries to bait us at playing their game, of, of angry argumentation and scoffing and reviling. And, and part of us, our hearts want to buy into that baiting. It's not where we want to go as we seek to accurately reflect the God whose name we bear. Out of love, we must not be quarrelsome. Out of love, we must be kind out of love, we must know God's word enough. See that? So, so, so knowing God's word is actually a way to love the lost. To know it well enough to be able to teach them. Paul says to Timothy, out of love, we must patiently endure. Out of love, we are to be gentle in our engagement with the world, and we entrust what happens next to the sovereign God who can change hearts, even the most hardened of heart, even the most lost of person. God can change them. I can't change them. How fervent is this need for loving engagement for the lost? All right, so we've got, we've got this, this, this brokenheartedness. We have this posture from 2 Timothy with which we approach the lost? How about we put a little, put a little uh, dash of fervency into there? Well, that's very simply found in Paul's letter to second, the second letter to the Corinthians. Actually, probably the third letter also, but the second one in the, in, recorded in our canon. You're very familiar with this, this because we're very familiar with 2 Corinthians 5.17. Any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. But listen to Paul, the, the premier New Testament theologian, in his words to the church at Corinth. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Stop right there. There's our, there's our bearing God's name connection. We are representatives of the one true God as he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. We bear his name. We are his ambassadors. What we do reflects upon him. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The word that gets me there is the word translated implore by the English Standard Version. In other translations, it is we beg you on behalf of Christ. We plead with you on behalf of Christ. Why would Paul use such strong language? These are people that are outside of his people from Romans 9, 2, and 3. He is begging for people to be reconciled to God. He tells Christ's followers as ambassadors of the king to beg people, to plead with people to be reconciled to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is aware of what happens if they die apart from Christ. And his love for them, his love for them does not want that to happen to them. So he's begging them, be reconciled to God. You will find hope, you will find purpose, you will find meaning, you will enter into a blessedness right now, and you will avoid the judgment and enter into glory. Be reconciled, and I beg you, I love you enough to beg you. Kind of the tone of what he's saying. We beg people to be reconciled to God from a platform of lives deeply transformed by that reconciled relationship. So I think that 2 Timothy 2 passage where, man, we're, we're, we're gentle and we're patient and we're kind, we're patiently enduring and we're willing to bear with people and teach them that can only happen from a life that has been reconciled to God. That's our platform. We display the fruits, the beauty of that reconciliation. We display those things in our lives, how we treat one another. We display those beauties while we beg and plead for them to be reconciled to God. We beg them out of love. We want them to experience all God has secured for us in Christ, a, a reconciled relationship, an ability to live in the blessed state, that Psalm 1, Matthew 5, blessedness here. Happiness, joy, purpose, meaning, satisfaction, hope, that blessedness the whole world's looking for and we possess it, and we offer it to them, and we beg them to take that offer in Christ. 
eternal life in God's presence. We are experiencing that transformation right now and we want them to get in on it. If we truly are to love, we want people to have those things. If we truly are to love, we don't want them to continue on in this life of broken relationship with God with a, with a judgment coming day by day closer. We must seek to be balanced people seeking to know the truth deeply, feasting on it as though it is the spiritual food God has intended for us and weeping for the lost, begging them, imploring them, reasoning with them, engaging them, building relationships with them. Runway's in sight now. Let's start landing this thing. And it's just to connect it to a, a broader, a broader theme in Scripture. And it is this. Zeal for doctrine and brokenheartedness for the lost fulfill the two greatest commandments. That sound familiar, Dan Sorcy? Dan Sorcy and I had breakfast this past week. It was really beautiful. He's like, hey, that sounds a lot like a puppet. I'm like, yeah, you're exactly right, man. Thank you, Dan. We show how much we love God in part by seeking to know more about Him. We, we show our love for God by digging deeply into His Word. The Word that paints a picture of who he is. I think of every I think of every verse, every chapter of scripture as a brush stroke. You think of you think of a painter when they come in that first brush stroke and you come back a month later and there's this picture of clarity that is just a series of brush strokes leading to this clear revelation of the person being portrayed. That's what scripture is. And God is like a magnet because we're created to be in relationship with him. The closer we get, the more we know about him, the more we love him. And the more we desire to know more about him. And then as we get closer and our love grows as we commune with him through the word, he becomes the chief desire in our lives. And all other desires pale in comparison to the one true God. And then when he becomes the chief desire in our life, we love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The first and greatest commandment. So love him, brothers and sisters. Love him. Love him. Love him by pursuing him relentlessly. Becoming a deep, devoted student of his word so you can accurately represent him as you seek to bear his name well. Love him and pursue him relentlessly. And we fulfill the second greatest commandment in part by pointing them back to God, pointing them to the way back. Who's the way? Christ. 
We must love our neighbor by getting to know them, caring for them, listening to them, seeking to understand them. Be willing to sacrifice for them. That's biblical love. All in the name of pointing them to Christ, the hope of the nations. That's where I'm thankful for, 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 for classes and teaching like Paul Ruppel's Who Do We Think We Are? That's what we're seeking to do. We're not learning what fuels one of the prevalent mindsets of the day, just seeking to scoff and berate and win an argument. It's not the purpose. The purpose is so we can understand and we can thoughtfully engage and plead with them, be reconciled to God. We must be and remain a church that strikes the balance between a zeal for deep doctrine and a tear-filled love for the lost. May God do that work in us and continue to do that work in us. Let's pray together. And as we pray, I'd invite the music ministers and those helping serve the table to come forward. Lord, we're just so grateful for the depths of the riches to be found in your word. As every turn, every verse, every chapter, every phrase just opens up just a treasure chest of who you are and the riches of who you are, Lord, is just absolutely inexhaustible. Father, create in us a hunger and thirst for your word as we seek as your people to represent you accurately and bear your name well among the nations. It's always been the call of your people. And Father, grant in us a long-suffering, patient, tear-filled love for those who don't know Christ. Especially, Father, by your Spirit and for your glory, grant us those graces in light of people who are angry and resentful. Some maybe even who've been hurt by the church or by the practice of religion. Father, help us to model our Lord Jesus and not reviling in return, but entrusting everything to our Father in heaven who deals and judges justly and rightly. So, Father, help us to be that way for our good, for the good of our neighbors, and ultimately for your glory as a sign of our love for you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.